0: Welcome to Coaching DNA Podcast. I am your host, Travis Wyckoff. My guests on this podcast are coaches, athletic directors, sports psychologists, and really anyone else that can add value to leaders. In each episode, we spend time exploring leadership, culture, development, personal growth, and much, much more. The guests are different in many ways, but share profound similarities. They are hungry to get better, they are guided by purpose, and they are driven to develop the people around them. Each episode allows us to dive into what skills, attributes, and giftings make up great leaders. When I'm not doing this podcast, I run Kingdom Coaching. It is my consulting business where I coach coaches. I work with coaches one-on-one, I work with coaching staffs, as well as run online cohorts. Additionally, I write a weekly email newsletter to resource coaches with tools, and strategies to be better leaders and coaches to find out more visit my website at kingdomcoachingtw.com and please check me out on twitter at kingdomcoachtw or at coaching underscore dna and give me a follow i hope you enjoy the show Really excited about this week's conversation. My guest is Ann Walker. Ann is the golf coach at Stanford University and has been super successful in her coaching career, first at UC Davis and now at Stanford, where she won the national championship in 2015. Ann and I had a great conversation. We talk about her journey from Scotland to uh, Cal Berkeley, where she played golf. We talk about her strengths and common attributes of elite leaders. We talk about peak versus optimal performance and much, much more. As you will see during this conversation, Anne is super bright, really engaging, and uh, a really, really clear communicator. This conversation is going to provide some great nuggets for coaches. So without further ado, my conversation with Ann Walker. And thanks for joining us uh, on the podcast. Uh, why don't you walk us through your journey from high school to present day?
1: Well, first of all, thanks for having me. This is great to be here and, and do this with you. I've been really excited about it all week and it's been nice just to reflect on what we were going to talk about today and somewhat try to relive those days by myself, actually. But um, high school till this moment, boy, there's been a lot happening in between there. I grew up in Scotland on a farm. Um Came from a farming community, both my parents were farmers and, uh, not really any golfers in the family to speak of, but around the age of 12 or 13, my dad would play once a week. And, you know, when you're a 13 year old girl and you're stuck in a farm with no neighbors and no friends anywhere close by, you start to kind of itch to get some socialization. And so my parents option was, they said, you know, you could join the golf club and, and that could be a way to spend the summer and make some friends and that's what i did around the age of uh, 12 13 we joined the golf got a junior membership and i spent the summers playing golf and washing dishes in the in the clubhouse there to make some extra money on the side and that went on till the age of probably 16 17 when my game really flourished really fortunate to flourish too and my parents i asked them to take me to the scottish national championship the junior championship and uh, it was a long drive for us. It was in Aberdeen, which was about three hours, which is unthinkable when you're Scottish to drive three hours somewhere with European gas prices. But they did it. They loaded me up and we went and um, it turned out I was actually pretty decent. And I was fortunate enough to make the national team. And from there, there was a progression and some cool stuff happened. But that led to a moment where the head coach at the University of California, Berkeley, Coach McDaniel. She had an up and rising program that had been formed, I think it was 94, 95, with their first team being 95, 96. So this was somewhat um, coinciding with me hitting that 16, 17, 18-year-old window. And she had gone through this process where she was observing, she wanted to have a really elite team and competitive team, and she was observing what that would take. And there had been an inflow of Europeans at the time into college golf. And so she decided that would be maybe the route she would take. And by good fortune for me, she reached out to a friend who had been involved with the Curtis Cup here in San Francisco, who reached a friend in Scotland who had said, Hey, you know any players over there? And she'd said, Yeah, there was a handful. Um, and so I was at a junior tournament and got a hold of Nancy McDaniel's number. I was all set to go to the University of Edinburgh, but I thought, well, what the heck, you know, I'd give this a call and and see what could come of it. Okay, so this was August, or it was, yeah, July 1997, and I called this American number. And at that point, I'd been to the States with my parents. I'd been to Orlando. We'd gone to Disney World twice, but Florida was the extent of my travels to the USA, I knew there was a time difference based on I'd been to Florida. So that was a five-hour time difference. I didn't know that in America, then there's an additional three. So I start calling her what I believe to be 8 a.m. her time. Turns out it's 5 a.m. She doesn't pick up. I do that for maybe two days. I leave a message, you know, hello, this is Ann Walker. I'm calling from Scotland. I'm looking to get that golf scholarship if it's available. I totally unknown what I'm doing. Then I just said, well, gee, she's not answering. I'm going to try even earlier. And so as it turned out, finally, her husband picks up and he's like, hello. I'm like, oh, yes, this is Ann Walker. I'm looking for Nancy McDaniel. And come to find out they actually had a newborn at the time, too. So that's that's kind of the story of all stories right there. But she ended up flying over watching me play a junior tournament. I shot my career low. No joke. And uh, I was 69 at the time. And we got done. And she said to me after the tournament, she said, do you always play like this? And I said, of course I do. And she, <laughs> she was like, right on. Do you want to go to Berkeley and we can get you started in January? And and uh, that was kind of how it went. It all went down in about 24 hours. I left that morning to play a junior tournament. I came home that night and I said to my parents, oh, I'm going to go to America and I'm going to play golf. And uh, my mom was like, what? <laughs> so anyway, we were able to get with Coach McDaniel and I ended up landing in Berkeley in January, uh, January 11th. 1998 in the middle of el nino it was the worst spring rains that california has had I, I think it might still be in the last 30 years or so part of the olympic club fell in the ocean because it got so wet cars were sliding off the road ocean beach the water came up into san francisco and i'm like where have i gone <laughs> i came to california with shorts and t-shirt and i arrived pouring rain in Berkeley." Um, but then more than that, I'd only been in Orlando. And so arriving in Berkeley was a real shock. And that was mm. definitely a change of pace from the strip malls of Orlando to arrive in um, the epicenter of protests and liberal movement there. So that was fun. And then I played four years there. We had a great run. I was really fortunate upon coming up on graduation. Uh, but a week or so before, I thought I'd turn professional. And our assistant coach at the time, Jay, announced he was going to move on. And so, Coach McDaniel, you know, just very graciously and very kindly brought it to my attention that she would love to have me join the staff if if that was something I was interested in. And so, yeah, I, I graduated on the Saturday, finished playing nationals, and I was fully employed by the Monday as the assistant coach for uh, University of California, Berkeley. So I have a lot to thank Nancy for, obviously. And, and that said, I was on a I was there till 2008, so a six year run, 2002 to 2008. And in that six-year run, we were just really fortunate to be hitting the stride of the program. It had been about 10 years at that point, the program had been in existence, we got some great players, and we had uh, three, maybe four, but three straight years of winning and or finishing in the top five at NC2As, won a Pac-12 championship. Uh, we had an individual NC2A champion. So just a lot of really great momentum for the program, which was to my good fortune too, you know, timing's everything. And Put me in a position where when the UC Davis job came open, which is just about an hour uh, northeast of Cal, I was I was a good candidate for that job. And it was great for me because I'd already left Scotland once and left a lot of family and friends. So being able to go to Davis close to Berkeley, where I'd spent 10 years, you know, making a new family and new friends, is able to go up there and uh, spend four years there. And again, just really good fortune with awesome kids, great momentum. A uh, good group of women. And we did some really fun things there. won, you know, I think three or four straight big West championships, we got to nationals, finished eleventh at nationals. Just did really exciting stuff. And we'd just come out of Division two into Division one actually at Davis at the time. And then the Stanford job opened in two thousand and twelve. And again, that momentum made me a candidate for this position. I knew the Bay Area well at that time. I was well connected in this area, both recruiting and just, in the athletic business at that point. Um, and so had some nice ties and in July, 2012, I was, I was able to be offered the job at this position and, and grabbed it at the time. And then here we are a quick eight years later, um, we've had a good run and just excited to hopefully get back up and run maybe sometime here in the next six to eight weeks again, but COVID willing, we'll see what COVID decides, but yeah, that's kind of the journey and that's what leads me to this moment here where I get this opportunity with you today, Travis. Cool. Thanks for walking us through that.
0: Uh, Side note, did Bowlesby hire you?
1: Uh, He did not. So funny, there was this interim gap where Bob Bowlesby left and Bernard Muir wasn't hired yet. And so Patrick Dunkley was the acting AD. Okay. And Patrick hired me, but Bernard and I were hired within seven days of each other. So Thank you. cool. And I was also uh, Greg Mehingan, who's our swim director, swim coach here, we were also hired within seven days. And he's gone on just to be phenomenal. I mean, three national championships. He's the Olympic coach this year, he's a complete superstar. So back to where you started this conversation a little while ago offline. Do I ever feel intimidated? Yes, I do.
0: Well, we'll dive into that here in a sec. I want to hear about Nancy McDaniel. What made her such a good coach?
1: Yeah. So she's still a very close friend um, and we stay in regular touch. She's been really influential in my life and I'm glad to have the opportunity to speak about her. I think what made Nancy a really good coach. So when I came to play for Nancy, uh, she was competitive. She was energetic. She loved the game. She had a young family, um, she did it all. She was the epitome of, you know, when you say, Well, you're a female, but you can still have it all. She was that woman, and she brought so much passion and energy to the team that it was really infectious for us as young women, too, to have that same energy and excitement and passion for both golf and life, too. And I look at Nancy and that team, you know, she has several women who've gone on to coach. I coach here at Stanford. But the Cal Poly coach um, played for Nancy, the Virginia coach played for Nancy, the UC Davis coach played for Nancy, Mm. Uh, the USF coach used to play for Nancy. So she's had several players from that era go on and be coaches. And I think about that. Why was that? And I think it was just because it was really, really fun. And she created an energy where we couldn't wait to get to practice because we just had a blast and we formed these really close friendships with one another Um, but then when I went on to coach with Nancy and I got to see more behind the scenes of what was going on, first of all, her life was chaotic. She busted her butt to make it all work. And and now I'm living that with, with my own kids and my own job. And, um, I'm, I'm going through what she was going through in those days. Uh, but I think what made Nancy really good was her competitive fire and her energy. And then her constant, you know, I would always give her the worst time. She'd have these big ideas every day. She would come to the office and she's like, so here's what I'm thinking. And then I'd be like, well, is that really realistic? I was the more practical one between the two of us. And that combination made us a pretty good combo. Mm -hmm. But I think that constant love of learning and that constant desire of, okay, what's under the next rock? Okay. I looked under that rock. What's under the next rock? And sometimes the rock that she turns over has, you know, great stuff under And other times it's dead worms, but she's still going to keep turning rocks over. And I still see that in her to this day. You know, she's signing up for classes. She's always watching stuff or reading books or, you know, noodling on what can make her team better. So that part of Nancy was really infectious. And a lot of the things I learned from her and her, um, her methodology about making players better, I've taken and brought in my own program.
0: Okay, let's, let's, we'll, we'll, let's dive into the Stanford coaches. But because obviously being on campus at Stanford, you're surrounded by, just on that campus, surrounded by just tons of great leaders, great coaches. What are some of the common attributes? We know that leaders are come in all different shapes and sizes, different personalities. We, we, we know that. But what are some common attributes that you have seen in uh, the great leaders you've been around?
1: Ooh, that's a good question. Um, it's a big question. Well, when I think of my peers at Stanford, the, my colleagues here, my, my fellow head coaches, uh, they're really thoughtful. And they are, they're intelligent, intelligent about their sport, of course. I mean, they're great X's and O's people, of course, but more than that, they're intelligent about people and they know people, they understand people, um, they're perceptive, they're driven. Do not get in front of a Stanford coach. My goodness, <laughs> you tell a Stanford coach, no, and they're going to say, did I hear? Yes. No, I said no. Did I hear yes? Uh, And they'll find a way. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I think of our head coach meetings and the passion in those rooms. I mean, you leave every time just feeling, I leave every time feeling like I'm inadequate. I'm not doing enough. I need to do more. I need to think of ways to get better. I need to think of ways to, you know, to to turn the screw to just make us a little bit better, a little bit faster, a little bit stronger, whatever it might be. Um, and that's, it's a really inspiring thing, but it's also an incredibly overwhelming thing. I would guess I'm not alone in that feeling, you know, but it's not something I sit around whispering at head coach meetings. Like, do you feel overwhelmed by how great these people are? (laughs) Um, but that I think it's infectious too, which constantly drives the, drives the ship forward. So, yeah.
0: So we're going to talk later about just the mental skills with golfers, but, for you personally, as a coach, you're around Stanford, you've got you've 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 got those thoughts of like, holy cow, like when am I gonna be found out? How do you, yeah, what have you done just to make sure you don't get sucked too deep into that? Like I think we've all had those thoughts, but there's a difference between having those thoughts that come and go and kind of, you know, kind of kind of get rid of them, and having those thoughts stick and actually affect how we perform and how we coach. How do you prevent those thoughts from sticking and actually losing confidence as a coach?
1: Uh, Yeah, that's a great question. And so I'll back up to 2012. You know, I was coming from UC Davis and full disclosure, Stanford was my dream job. Of course Mm -hmm. it was. I'd always been in my mind that, gosh, if there was anywhere I could coach, this would be the place for several reasons. One, I just really believe in academics and I believe in the idea of student athlete Um, And then I I love the game of golf, and I'm competitive, and and this combination really was something I dreamed of. So when the job opened, I went through the hiring process. There were several interviews, and I finally got to the on-campus interview, and I received my itinerary for the day. It had lunch with John Tanner, who has won a, a bunch of water polo championships, and Tara Vanderveer, who, when you're a female coach, Tara Vanderveer is at the top of the pyramid. She's the untouchable, and and I couldn't believe it. I, my husband at the time, or still, still my husband, um, I said, oh my gosh, I'm going to have lunch with Tara interview Worse than that, she's going to interview me. It was so overwhelming. Mm. Uh, and, but then, you know, we had that lunch, you know, it went great and we get to this point, but I think, then I got hired actually. And let me tell you a little bit more about that. I had lunch with, I reached out to Tara. Now I was her colleague per se, although I will never be her colleague. She's like the winningest of the winning right there, the goat. But I reached out to her and she is so approachable. What a cool lady and what a cool friend she's been to me and mentor and um, of all things great at Stanford. What a blessing for me to have her in my life now. And I consider her a, a good friend too. So I'm really fortunate. But anyway, at that time, I reached out to her and I said, hey, could we get lunch? You know, I want to learn from you. I want to hear how you've been able to make this all work here at Stanford. And ideally, I can follow in your footsteps and leave a a great program. And she said, sure, no problem. Let's meet for lunch. So we met for lunch. And I said, gosh, you know, you've you've done all these things. And like, can you tell me about how you've sustained success? And she looked at me and she said, well, that's the goal, right? Sustained success. I'm like, okay, that's really simple. So I'm writing it down. I'm like, that's the goal, sustaining success. (laughs) And then I said, so um, what do you think the key to the job is, you know, sustaining that success? What do you think that is? And she said, it's recruiting. She said, if you can't recruit, you can't win. And if you can't win, you can't coach. I'm like, okay, recruiting. (laughs) It was like so simple, but it was also unbelievably terrifying to me as a new coach, because all I heard, and she didn't mean it this way. She was just trying to make it simple for me. But uh, all I heard, because I had just come to Stanford and was already overwhelmed by the success of the whole athletic department and the brand itself. I mean, let's face it, the whole brand is considered excellence. All I heard was win or be fired, win or be fired. Right. right? And And I think about that now, eight years in, That's absolutely not the message she was giving me. She was genuinely imparting, which was great knowledge, like focus a lot on recruiting. If you recruit great players, great players become great students, great students, uh, great scholar athletes come together, win championships. That's how the program succeeds. But I heard win or be fired. So how do you put that aside and try to stay day to day? I remember very vividly coming home from that lunch. And I said to my husband, I don't know if I can make it here, but what I'm going to do, we we had a very frank conversation. I said, I'm going to go all in. I'd gotten a a three-year contract at the time. I said, I'm going to go all in and I'm going to give the best I have every day. And at the end of the three years, if this doesn't work out, I'll be able to walk away saying I gave the best I had. And if, if that's not good enough, that's okay. I can live with that. I mean, life is not, you know, all about if I'm at Stanford or not, but, Life is about I know I woke up every day and I gave what I had to whatever that that situation um, needed in the moment. And I said, we'll go from there. And I feel like since that day, that's all I've really tried to do is do right by my players, do right by my family, do right by Stanford University and our athletic department and continue down that road. And, And yes, you know, you said, Travis, yeah, there's times you get distracted off of that where you think, gosh, am I doing enough? Could I be doing more? Um, And it takes a really good support team around you, people who really grind you, which I I feel like I have, who can bring you back to like, hey, are you being a good person? Are you treating other people the right way? Are you treating your players the right way? Are you making decisions truly based on what's right for the kids in your program? And if you are, over the long haul, it'll work it.
0: Yeah, that's that's, uh, Tara-esque advice. Just do the best you can do and
1: yeah. Just sustain success. Yeah. you know, yeah. And that's the thing. What is success? I heard that day winner be fired. Right. That's not what she was saying. Mm. She was saying be your best every day good. and your best will be good enough to make your team their best and making their team their best will make your program the best.
0: Yeah. That's really good. I even think the, the piece that you added, like, and if that doesn't work out, I'm I'll, I'll be fine. Like, I'll yeah. be fine. Like we'll be all right. We'll figure something else out. I think that added piece, be your best, and just be okay with with what happens. Generally, when you do that, it seems to me, athletically or, or as a coach, you operate at a high level because you, you don't have the extra stress. And it generally does work out when you're not so gripping that it has to work out. You let it go. You go you know, compete and or coach at a high level, and it usually does work out.
1: Yeah, and, and you said it right there, you know, I think in college, probably anything, college athletics is all I have experience with, but probably anything, you get so far down the rabbit hole, yep. that it's really becomes hard to have that perspective that if it doesn't work out, it'll be okay, you know, and I tell kids that all the time, all these kids will say, how do I get to Stanford, you know, not just recruits, but my friends, children, how do I get to Stanford? And I said, well, you do your best, but if you don't get to Stanford, or you don't get to Harvard... It's funny how in life you'll look back and be like, gosh, that was the right thing for me at that time. Yes.
0: That's such a good word. That's good. Okay. Let's talk about uh, kind of back to you're 12 or 13 years old. You, If I understand you correctly, you're like, just get me off the farm so I can go, go do something. What was the draw then to, to golf? What drew you to the sport after you kind of played it a few times?
1: Uh, well I played a little soccer and I'd done a little running and I really wasn't good at any of those things. So (laughs) kind of like every kid that ends up in golf. Um, but no, it was mostly because the golf course was close to my dad's work. And so that was, dad could take me in the morning, he could drop me and he could pick me up at the end of the day. It was convenient. And, you know, I think back to what did I get out of that time period that helped shape me over the, over the years and coming from a farming background, um, both my parents are incredibly hard workers. Uh, my mom started her own business and has had it now for 40 plus years. And it's a very robust business. She's a florist. She's been a florist of the year in Scotland a couple of different times. And she started that from nothing. And my dad, he's worked his way all the way up to the top of his company too. And um, hard work was a non-negotiable in our house. And giving your best was an absolute non-negotiable. And so when I think back, you know, the golf thing, it was, it was great. I love being outdoors that too, but I also think back to, it was also convenient for my parents in the sense that, you know, they really, they prioritized. we have to do our work too. My dad, you know, he was going to go to work, he had to give his best and therefore this fits in that window and and we're going to allow you to do that. But with that, I also had to work at the golf course because my parents also, you know, you have to have a job. You have to earn money. And, and it wasn't a if because you need to pay your way thing or anything. It was more about this is how life works. Yep. And so it's not all play. It's not all fun. You do well in school. You get to play golf you also have to have a site job. So you're learning how to work. And so I washed the dishes and that was not a glamorous job, but it served me well because I've washed dishes the rest of my life. And I think I will continue to, totally. um, but I, I, that was kind of what came out of that, you know, being raised by my parents on the farm there is just, you have to work hard and you have to give your best. And if you do that, you know, then we're okay with you. The rest is gravy.
0: Yeah. Love that. So you, you go to Cal and I'd like to dive in at, uh, team captain you're in the cow hall of fame what were you like what were your strengths
1: as a player as an actual golfer yes as a player, yep uh probably my work ethic actually yes. that was probably my strength which um yeah well my short game was pretty good but that's also because i worked my butt off on it mm-hmm. so yeah i would say that that's pretty much it. Like, and, and then, you know, I don't need a lot to drive me beyond my own self and I still find that today. I, I don't really need a lot of external tournaments on the line or trying to beat someone or, yeah. uh, that stuff doesn't really matter that much to me. There's enough inside my own self that I'm always constantly like, what's my own next challenge. What's my own next challenge. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that probably was one of my strengths and, and still is.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. You bring something up that I've, I've just I've put a lot of thought to over the last, I don't know, probably years since I heard a, a, a guy, I don't even remember where I heard it, but talk about the difference between competitiveness and drive. Competitiveness is, I'm going to beat you. Drive is, I'm going to be my very best. And it's interesting, the combination of those, you know, I don't know if you watched the Last Dance documentary with Michael Jordan. And he feels to me like he had both of those at a really, really high level competitive. He wanted to beat that guy, but there was also an insane amount of drive. I've also been around people that are really competitive, but not driven. Like they might show up for games, but they probably don't ever play at the highest level because they're just not driven And guys that are driven that aren't maybe kind of to what you're saying, like the, the, I've got to beat that person is not what get your motor going. It's the, I just want to be really, really good. I don't know. It's just an interesting, and I don't even know if I've made sense of how that all plays together, if, especially for leadership and, and coaching. I find that the more driven you are versus competitive, the more successful you're going to be, but I know some coaches that are super, comp- I don't know,
1: I'm kind of rambling. No, I but- think you're right. I, I I would almost say the shelf life is different, though, and, and I don't know this to be true, but mm. Those that are driven internally usually have a longer shelf life. That's good. And those who want to beat someone, you're going to have success maybe somewhere in there. The time frame of that success is probably going to be on a, a smaller scale.
0: Yeah. That's really good. Yeah.
1: Who so, knows? I have, I have no uh, research to back that up. That's just... Totally. No, all
0: mine's anecdotal too. I'm just thinking of all yeah. the really, really good leaders... <laughs> And some have been really competitive. And to your point, there there it feels like a little bit of a shorter fuse. It feels like a little bit of a a sprint where they but when the drive's not there, they you know the yeah. the external motives to beat people maybe wax
1: and wane, I don't know. Yeah. Well, and golf's a great sport to look at that. I mean, I think in team sports that can get uh, you know, you reference Michael Jordan and team sports, and I don't have much experience with team sports, but I know in golf, it can be a real hindrance to try to beat someone else Yeah, just because you have no control whatsoever. Yep. Your only real competitor in golf is the golf course. Mm-hmm. And I can go out and be on my very best and shoot a 65. And it just happens that day that Travis got hot and shot a 64, but I you know, that's where in golf, if you aim to beat someone and that is your end game it just doesn't work out normally totally. so yeah. you better be playing for internal reasons versus external yeah that's good um okay so
0: let's talk about your strengths you've mentioned some I thought your your um, comments on common attributes were really really good the emotional intelligence the thoughtfulness they were driven what are you what are your strengths
1: um well you'd have to probably ask my players because probably my idea of my strengths are very different to maybe what my former players would say. Yeah, But if I was to take a stab at it, I think close to the top would be a clear communicator, straight talker. Um, you always know where you stand because if it's going to cross my brain, it's coming out my mouth. And that can be a hindrance too. You know, yeah. I, I also have to really manage that because what I've found over the years is Within my program, that becomes the expectation and they understand me, and we talk about that a lot. But just going around my daily life and living in society, people are not used to straight talk, and they're not used to people sharing a thought that is not intended to in any way be controversial. Just what's going through my brain at the time. Um, So that, but I would say, from my team perspective, that would be close to the top as as an attribute that's allowed us to be successful. Um, I work hard to treat everyone the same and really give everyone respect, knowing that no two people have had the same opportunities in life and walked the same path. And it's impossible for me to ever know how many footsteps Travis has taken or where those footsteps led or where they went and why they went. And therefore try to approach every player, every person that comes through a program, every person that comes through my life, actually, I should say that it's not just sport. Mm -hmm. Um, try to treat them with the same respect and and attention. Um, I think as far as I actually listened to a podcast the other day, you know, you mentioned it was a Navy SEAL who's just finished up a book about attributes, Rich Roll podcast. And he was talking about, funny enough, he was talking about those that love to train for the sake of training and those that train to compete Mm. and differentiating differentiating that and, and how that pops up in the SEALs. But uh, he was talking about adaptability uh, as a core attribute and how one of the things I loved that he said, it was great. He was saying in 2020, you know, when you sign up to be a CEO, you know, you're going to go through hell week. You know, you're going to go through buds. You sign up for that. They have a 90% attrition rate because they have the bell that can get you out at any point over those six weeks. You ring the bell, you're out. And he said, what 2020, what makes it so difficult and so hard is the whole world was thrown into hell week in theory or hell year, but no one signed up for it. It was something that was put upon us. In addition to that, there's no bell to get out. So in SEALs, you can ring the bell. And the common person for the most part, would they sign up to be go through six weeks of SEAL training, most likely not. So therefore the the core attributes within each of us don't necessarily line up with this year that we've gone through. And therefore it creates this crisis Hmm. of um, character. And he was saying the number one attribute that everyone has developed in, and I agree with this, is ad- adaptability. Whether you liked it or not, you were stretched ever so slightly in adaptability. And then there were those of us who had adaptability within us for whatever reason as a core attribute. And I've been reflecting on that a lot. And I, you know, 2020 has been challenging, it's been difficult, but. When I look around, I perceive that it's been less challenging for me. And I think some of that is because I have adaptability inside. And I think most coaches most likely do have adaptability inside, because at the end of the day, we're in the people business. Yep. And I always tell people, people always say, oh, "It's you know, what's it like being a coach? What's it like being a coach? And in many ways, I say it's like being a, a fireman. You wake up and you don't know how many fires or how big the fires. And you don't even know where the fires are going to come from, yeah. but you know they're coming. And so, and so you're always kind of pivoting and changing. And one minute you're doing, you know, team travel, the next minute you're, you're on the phone trying to put out a fire and next minute you're doing budget, then, you know, you're at practice, then you're being a a swing coach. So you're just constantly pivoting and having to be that way. Um, And then, you know, having two young children, I think you become adaptable too. But I was thinking about that. And I think that's probably a core attribute that served me really, really well in coaching is being adaptable.
0: It's so good. What most excites you in coaching? What fires you up throughout the day? You mentioned budget. You mentioned putting out this fire. You mentioned practice. You mentioned, you know, working with someone's swing. What fires you up?
1: Uh, That's an easy one for me. And uh, it's just the relationship stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, I think when you look at our program as a whole, so to go back to 2002 when I started with Nancy, and actually she brought – a guy by the name of Roland Todd, Todd Coaching Company. You may have come across him through the years. Uh, Roland was a former basketball coach at Nevada, Reno. And then he was Portland Trailblazers coach, I believe, in the late 70s. And by the time uh, Nancy introduced him to our team, I think it was like 99, 2000. She's worked with him quite a lot over the years. Uh, he brought in building championship teams, I believe is the name of his program, And that was one of the first times I was ever exposed to what it would take to truly build a championship team. And then he came back several times. And by the time, you know, I got to see him, let's say, I I think it was when I was a sophomore or junior. So it had to be 2000 or 2001. I stayed there to 2008 and he came in almost every year, if not every other year. For me, what was beautiful about that was I was evolving as a person and then also as a coach and a leader through that time. So every time I would hear his same program, I heard it differently and I gleaned different bits of information and it landed with me differently, but it really helped me evolve. And, And the biggest takeaway from him is relationship is key to everything. And that is so true. I mean, that blankets life. Relationship is the key to everything. And then another huge component, there, there's multiple components, but these were the two that always stuck with me. And to this day, um, they're in our program. They're, they're always circling as communication. Mm. And so when I think about what fires me up most about every day, it's truly the relationship with the players that I have and the players that are current, but also the players that are in the past. And that's what I, um, I think a lot about. I, I just listened to another podcast recently with Jim Collins, And he was, he was mentioning how it can be hard when you're working with people or you're coaching people, because sometimes you get lost and you're not really seeing how you're helping them. But if you can change the vector, just a tiny fraction, when you work with that person, you've changed the trajectory of their life. And it would like hit me like, bam, that's what I love is that maybe I'm not moving the needle huge. Some, some players you are actually, some players you're really moving the needle but other days, you know, every day you might just be moving that needle just a teeny, teeny, like 0.01 of an angle. But in doing that, you just changed the vector of their life. And that's the part for me and the communication and and talking and having that feel that um, open line of communication that's really clear. And I don't think there's many women, period, who have someone in their life where there's a free flowing communication that is honest, transparent, open, non-threatening, um, you know, and I try, of course I fail too. I, I fail miserably all the time at this, but I keep working at it and I'll never stop working at it uh, to have that be something between me and my players that they are learning simultaneously when they're in this relationship with me, how to communicate way beyond Stanford golf and how to have that tool of communication go with them the rest of their life. Just because I believe it's a huge asset. And I I don't know, I think men and women maybe are somewhat different. There's probably some overlap, but I know for women for sure that having the gift of communication and being able to straight talk in life is a separator that can really help you both, you know, in, in marriage in those relationships and friendships in work relationships in parenting and anything. So yeah, I would say that's at the core of our program. And that's what every day when I go to work, like I'm fired up to do all the other stuff. But I really love that part of moving the needle with these guys when it comes to being great communicators. That's good. So how
0: do you create a culture in your program, where there's honest feedback, there's two-way. It's just a, it sounds like a really, really crazily healthy culture. How, how have you created that?
1: I think it's getting harder to create it just because of the influence of social media and the phone is with them all the time. now. So to be a great communicator, you have to be able to communicate. So right. there's the basic level of actually have a conversation and we're losing that more and more. I mean, I see it firsthand. I know that's well being discussed at every level right now, and it's well documented, and it's at the core of a lot of our concerns around mental health, Mm -hmm. and is that a root? I see it firsthand in just the way my players have changed over time in the team van or sitting in the, the team area. We have a team lounge, and I think there's positives there, but there's certainly a lot of negatives and some of those being really deep conversation yep. that happens between two people allowing for relationships to form. Mm-hmm. So that that makes it trickier because I think at the core level, you need trust to have a, a healthy, honest feedback relationship r- loop. You have to have a, a foundational system of trust and trust comes through conversation and, and these shared experiences. So we work at that. We have a team rule actually that we're no cell phones uh, at dinner ever. And that's been really good. I mean, I think if you asked any of our players, some of their most fond memories are team dinners. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's by chance. I think much of that is because the the hammer comes and says, hey, no cell phones. That's just a team rule. Yeah. Well, then the only option is they talk, you know, and, and they converse and they share stories and they share memories. And those memories turned into a collaborative collaborative um, moment. So I think that, and then to further your question, we talk a lot about within our group, I'm always talking to them about just the power of um, communication. And it's a gift that I can give them through our team and they can give one another through our team Mm -hmm. that will then serve them for the rest of their life. And let's give that gift to each other. Let's work on that. And let's not be afraid of that. Um, when we do have stuff arise within our team, what we try to do is we try to nip it in the bud right away. We try to take care of it. Uh, we, I try to express that the hardest conversations are the best conversations. Yeah. You know, there's no shortcuts to anywhere worth going. And so let's sit down, let's have this hard conversation, but let's remember that whatever I share with you, it's not a right or wrong. It's just how I feel in this moment. And I ask that you respect that I am being vulnerable and I'm sharing with you this is how I feel in this moment. Again, not right or wrong, but help me understand this from where you sit. Help me understand this. And for the most part, I found that once you do that, it helps. And I I always sit on those conversations. I'm always in on them. I try to help. I, I try to let the conversation happen, but facilitate the healthiness of it so that it doesn't get too far down a road, um, and they're not easy. Those are really difficult times, but I think they're times that my players grow as as um, women, and I think that's worthwhile time spent.
0: Yes, that's so good. I love what you're doing. I think I was just at lunch today with a uh, a buddy of mine who I used to work with, and we were, you know, having a discussion about just yeah, connecting with people. And I I think the two the two biggest Areas where we struggle is one, just having a a dialogue, having having the ability to look at somebody and ask them a thoughtful question to start a conversation, like just take an interest in another person beyond just a, hey man, what's up? Beyond that, like a legit interest. So that's one. And the other one is having conflict, like how to handle conflict in a healthy way, Mm -hmm. not via text. Via to your point, hey, this is this is kind of how you know when you said this or when this happened. This is how I feel. I you know love to hear your thoughts on it. like ha- like I think people either handle conflict super aggressive or super passive and never handle it. And both of those are ditches that you want to stay out of. Anyways, I want to encourage you, Anne. That fires me up. That's so good. The just the life skills that these girls right now they're not aware of it. In 10 years, when they look around and all their friends don't know how to handle conflict and don't know how to get a good conversation, they're like, this is normal. This is what we did at college. I think, uh, yeah, in 10 years, they'll hopefully they'll look back and be like, thank you, Ann.
1: Yeah, actually, I just had a, probably kind of a small career highlight recently. Um, in the past six months, one of my former players has been elevated to a management position within a huge Fortune 500 actually probably more than that, but um, a huge worldwide brand. And she called and she said, I'm thinking back on all these things within our program and they just worked, they just worked Mm -hmm. so well. And she said, in the moment I took it for granted coach, but I look back now and she's like, you were working at that every day. And then she picked my brain for, I mean, we were on the phone for a solid 60 minutes or so. She was just picking my brain on all these management questions, leadership management. And I was, I mean, it was great fun. We had a great time. And, but I made the comment to her. I said, no one ever asked these questions. It's funny. No one ever asked them because until you're living it, it's not relevant. It's just something that you took for granted or passed you by. And now she's living it in a a managerial position within a team. And she's going, holy smokes. Wait, let's, let's circle back on that and get some details on how that all worked. That's cool. Dad had to fire you up. Oh, it was really fun. I know. I told her, I said, cause afterwards I actually sent her a message and I said, that was a gift. You don't understand this yet again, but you just gave me the greatest gift of 2020. Thank you oh. for reaching out because as a coach, you know, there's no greater gift than when one of your former players comes back, circles back and says, gosh, that was really influential. And thank you. So it was really cool. I, I would want to just elaborate one little part there from 2020, you know, what a year it was. And we just had a a zoom call this week. And one of the things we talked about was communications always at the core of our program, but we're really going to lean in on as a group and me as a coach is um, controversial discourse. So thinking through, you know, I want to encourage and need to encourage my players to openly share freedom of thought That is in conflict with those at the table who are maybe their best friends. But I'm gonna lean in on that so hard this year, next year, hopefully for many years to come, because I think that is a skill that this age group right now is losing for whatever reason. I don't know why they're losing that. Um, But groupthink is dangerous and there's so much of it right now. And just really wanna encourage my kids to be okay with thinking differently with the person to are right or left, but loving that person, it, you know, you can still love and respect and have a best friend that you think differently about some of your core beliefs. 100%. So really want to work on that. That'll be, you know, that's not something we've really done in the past and leaned into, but I think I have a responsibility as a coach right now to do that. I think we all do all coaches, all adults who have any influence over the younger generation. I think we all have a responsibility right now to teach them that, Love thy neighbor, even if thy neighbor thinks completely different to I do. Yeah, that's so big time.
0: I want to ask uh, one more question here, and then I'll go to my three uh, closing questions. John Tanner, when he mentioned your name, talked about um, your focus on mental skills and just the way you have worked the mental side of sport. Talk to me a little bit about what you do, where, you, where, where the influence of that came from. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about that.
1: Yeah, I think uh, so. Some of that came from probably what was my Achilles heel that hung me up from not being able to turn professional was I, I could have, but I knew in my heart probably coaching would be a better choice. Was I wasn't maybe maybe not maybe I was not as in control of my mental thoughts as maybe I would need to be to be successful professionally. I think I've come to learn 20 years later that probably I was being harder on myself than I really needed to be as I've gotten more involved with elite players and um, being around some of the best in the game, both professional and amateur. I think I didn't understand in those days that everyone wrestles with their mind. I mean, that's just part of it. It it doesn't, it doesn't quiet for anyone really people work at it to make it quiet. Uh, But I didn't understand that at the time. So I thought, gosh, this chitter chatter that, Is constant and I I don't really have a good control of, uh, will hold me back. And it did hold me back a little bit. I, I could have been even better than I was, most likely in college. But that also inspired me and kind of fueled me to learn more through the years and understand that part more and research that part more and dig in and talk to people about that part. And I think that's become over time. Um, one of my strengths as a coach, the ability to get in there with a the player and, and not make it super complicated, but just understand enough about what, you know, what gets them going, what maybe trips them up a little bit, what voice is loud, the voice that is loud, what's it saying, hmm, why is it saying that, maybe work back a little bit and try to, to mellow out maybe the area, the hot spots that uh, create those moments uh, but doing that very gingerly and doing that with a, a full, you know, assault in someone's mind, because it's a fragile, it's a fragile deal in sports. It's the difference between who makes it and who doesn't, in my estimation, yep. for the most part. I mean, there's a handful of other things, but once you start talking about elite and you're already talking about the top one percent, mm-hmm. that ends up usually being the differentiator. And so I think in a way I was really fortunate that it was my Achilles heel, which then drove me to dig in and become just fascinated with it and ask a lot of questions and lean on a lot of people. Um, so what does that look like day to day? Some of that goes back to this communication we were talking about. I, you know, I try really hard to really have a good finger on the pulse with every player and get to know them because usually life plays out in sport for the most part, you know, you don't separate the two, they become one, uh, for good or bad, but, understanding that can often help me understand the player and why at certain times they're more vulnerable than not. And then we just try to work on those things. Unfortunately, it boils down to one very simple thing, you know, in golf anyway, one shot at a time, Mm -hmm. which is the equivalent of being in the present, uh, which is the ideal spot for everyone. And I know Michael Jordan, you know, he was the king of that, being able to be in the present and being in the zone. Uh, But in golf, we call it one shot at a time and it sounds so simple, but it is so Hard, so incredibly difficult. But that's really all we try to do all the time is finding ways to make it more quiet between the ears that then allows things to, um, the swing the flow freely. So yeah. spend a lot of time doing that.
0: So, what um, for the coaches listening, if they are either A, really into this or they think, wow, I need to dive into, what are some resources that you could point them to that would? it would be helpful getting them going on this idea of how to yeah, help our athletes be better mentally? Yeah, focused.
1: that's a it's a good question. So I would say the majority of what I've done since COVID hit is actually just try to lean into this idea of being meditation. That's um, somewhat new for me. I, I think a lot of what we've been doing is meditative to some level, but without actually it being a disciplined practice or without actually probably um, teaching it the right way. So I've been doing a lot of listening to podcasts from ultra, uh, athletes and that's been, it's funny. And maybe this is only for my sport, but, um, I think there's a lot to be learned from ultra athletes in the sense that they do something usually unthinkable, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, hundreds of miles and hundreds of degrees of heat or whatever it may be alone for many hours, sometimes many days. And the number one thing they're wrestling with is their mind. Mm-hmm. And so really trying to think about, okay, what is it? How did they manage that? And so I've just been trying to read books, trying to listen to podcasts. And the same stuff comes up most of the time. And it comes back to it's it's meditation, even though they're not calling it meditation either. But allowing thoughts to come up and being okay with that thought. And being okay with it's hard or it's uncomfortable or... Um, Whatever it might be in any given moment, but then embracing that yeah. and in welcoming that. And that's where I see a lot of, and I'm sure you see a lot of too. Oftentimes, when that comes up in your brain, and I was this person, when those thoughts would come up, you know, like, are you really good enough? You know, this is a really narrow fairway, whatever it might be, fear arose. And then fear fuels the thoughts. And then from there, those thoughts have control of you versus you have control of your thoughts. Hmm. And what I've really been learning from these ultra marathon runners or ultra anything really is that those thoughts, I mean, they can get really dark over the course of 24 hours, 110 miles, whatever it might be. They can get really, really dark, but they embrace that in that moment, that's that's a natural thought. And you know what? It's going to come and go. And two steps later, it might be gone. A half mile later, it might be gone. Just live with it right now and let it be there, but they're not fearful of it. So I I don't know quite yet how that translates into golf. I I listened to one podcast the other day that hit home really hard for me, separating um, peak performance and optimal performance. And this was a new idea for for me, but I loved it. And it coincides with this ultra running stuff. It's not realistic to think that we can have peak performance every day, every hour, every minute. It's just not realistic. We want peak performance when the game's on the line at the national championship, right? Optimal optimal performance, that is realistic. You can have optimal performance every day. Optimal performance is you're giving whatever you have, your very best in that moment. So uh, uh, actually it was the Navy SEAL was talking about it. He said, but, you know, by day six of freezing in the water, he was half the man he was six days before. So he was definitely not in peak performance. He was worn down. He was beat up. He hadn't slept, but optimal performance. He gave everything he had in that moment. And so he performed optimally. Mm. And if you're going to, if you're going to endure anything long-term, whether it be an ultra race or whether it be a, a season for me, I think about it as a season. Uh, it's a, it's a long season. Therefore, it's not feasible to think you can be at peak performance from September 1 to May 23rd, but it is reasonable to think you would be at optimal performance with peak performance at designated moments. Mm. And I think that was a great takeaway for me because I was like, yeah, that's what it is. And a lot of our stress and, and, um, what happens in our brains is this perceived pressure we apply in ourselves, like this moment, I must be at my peak. Well, maybe you just can't be, you know, maybe last night you just had six hours of sleep. Maybe this week you didn't get all your homework turned in, whatever it might be. Um, but optimal, you can expect that of yourself. So I'm going to be weaving that into our team. Those are going to be new terms, new, new language, new ways of thinking, and see how that plays out over the course of our season, maybe the next couple of seasons.
0: That's great. I love that. So the optimal performance makes, brings me back to what you said when you first got to Stanford, I'm just going to be my, I'm going to be my best.
1: Yeah, that actually that's spot on. That's right. Uh, Cause that's all I have. And so, and yeah. that's all any of us have at any moment. That's exactly right. And there's going to be probably days I come home and feel like, Oh man, I just nailed that today, you know, yeah. whatever it might be. And that's probably a peak performance day. Um, but you can't have that every day. It's just not realistic. It's the same if you're going to run 100 miles. You can't be great for all 100 miles. All right. But parts of the way in there, you might be great.
0: Yeah, it's really good. I, I noticed you mentioned Rich Roll. I've listened to some of his stuff, his podcast. Yeah, he's got some good stuff. Yeah,
1: he's, I, I've listened to a bunch of his stuff um, this year and Tim Ferriss, a lot of his stuff. Yep. Um, another podcast, What It Takes, I've been listening to yep that's a good one so just weaving some stuff in It's good
0: okay i end with three questions uh the first one is um and you might have just answered it what are you currently reading and or listening to that's helping you grow did you, uh, you know what well,
1: i think i just answered. it <laughs> okay anything uh
0: mostly what's that any other than the the meditation mentally the ultra athlete type kind of genre you've been diving into anything else you're listening to or reading about
1: Well I'm reading above the clouds by Kylian journal so he's an ultra runner right now um, but what else did I read um, no because that was the mindful athlete so I just read that too. I just read intangibles which is about team chemistry um, I'm not sure if I read anything for uh, for fun. Yeah. Primarily all stuff uh, that's fun to me, so I'm assuming but it sounds like you read a lot. I have this year, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I try I always did read a lot, but then I had my my girls and that slowed me down, but you know now they're getting a little bit bigger, I'm getting back into reading, which is nice.
0: yeah. so where's that Where's that come from? Have you always loved reading? Did it get modeled
1: for you? uh that's a good question. Have I always loved reading on and off? Yes, but I would say, you know, probably modeled, uh, Nancy McDaniel was a good reader. She always had a book, whether she was reading it or not, it's questionable. So, (laughs) but she always had a good book on too. And I like to ask people, you know, what, what they like to read. And I always think that's an interesting question. In fact, when I was listening to, I think it was a Tim Ferriss podcast recently, he, he asked the, the person who was in this podcast, he asked a great question. He said, what book have you given to other people? Yep. On a regular basis. And if you haven't, what book would you give? And uh, the, the guy who was on there was Scott Kelly, the astronaut. He said, Endurance. And I love that book too. I just, I think that is the ultimate leadership story. And um, I, I love a good piece of history and geography too. So just picturing those guys down there stuck in Antarctica is crazy. Uh, but I started thinking about that. And I haven't ever really gifted books to people. And I think twofold, people don't really ask. One, two, I think it's kind of funny when you're like, oh, I gift you this book. But I started thinking about that afterwards, and I, I want to start doing that with my players. Whether they read it or not, I don't know. But I, I want to think of a book that's been impactful on me and and share that with them yeah. in the future.
0: So um, what book have you gotten the most out of that if you were a book gifter, which one would it be?
1: Gosh, well, off the top of my head, it's Coach K, Leading with the Heart. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty impactful the for you. My... It was hugely impactful. I read it when I was a young coach, probably 2003,
0: 2004.
1: Mm-hmm. And it was hugely impactful. And I've revisited it a few times over the years, and it's pretty simple. Um, but it, it's it's pretty true. It's based on relationship for the most part. Okay, the
0: second question I ask is, what advice would you give a young lady just getting into coaching?
1: Yeah, Uh, So you gave me this ahead of time. And I I was thinking about it. And I think that's a pretty easy answer. And I would say that is, you will be your own coach, there is only one you. Mm -hmm. And so know that know that what's in you, most of it's already in you, but know what your responsibility is, as a young coach, is to be curious, and to learn as much as you can of whoever you're around and take it in and absorb it. And you know nothing. So keep that in mind that every coach that shares tidbits with you, you don't get to have an opinion on because they have lived 20, 30 years of seeing things that you have not yet been fortunate enough to experience. So be patient and take that information from all these people, read books, listen to podcasts, make notes, and just, you just want a little bit from everyone, but don't try to mimic any one coach because you will be your own coach made up of multiple, you know, influences around you, Um, but take time and allow that process to evolve. Because I think if you rush it, or you try to get to the start line too early with, with what you know, that it makes it tougher in the long run to be a great coach. Mm. So just enjoying the journey, sit back and, and take it in and allow it to evolve you to a place where you'll know when it's ready for you to get to that start line. And and hit the go button and make all the decisions. That's cool. Did you
0: struggle with that at UC Davis, trying to mimic uh, Nancy, or did you feel like you had a awareness of not to do that?
1: Uh, no, I, th- uh, I think the time was right for me. I think when I was six years under Nancy, okay. and what I think about that when I look back was maybe what I did the last couple of years was trying to start making decisions or trying to be too influ- influential in decisions, not knowing that. Cause I was just outgrowing the position, mm-hmm. which was totally normal. Right. Um, but when I look back, you know, I wish I had just been able to understand that my time would come and that to just keep taking that time when I didn't have to make the decisions, you know, I didn't have to have the full accountability, to take that time and continue to learn from those around me, even within the Cal department uh, or within our broader coaches community. Cause when you're a young coach, the more experienced coaches are, you know, obviously much more willing to share information and they're much more receptive to, to giving you um, the crown jewels. But then when you become a peer of those great coaches those conversations, they're just more difficult to have. And yeah. even when you try to have them, they're just more difficult and maybe not as transparent. So I, I didn't understand that at the time. And I look back and I realized, now I probably could have picked up the phone and called all the great coaches in the country and they would have taken my call. They're not as likely to take my call today yeah. as they were then, you know? So. Yeah.
0: Interesting. Yeah. It's Good. Okay. And I end with this. Uh, who would you like to hear on this podcast? Talk about well, who would you like to hear their history and background, and then them talk about you know their program and their leadership?
1: Yeah, that's a no-brainer for me too. It's Dan Brooks at Duke University, women's golf coach. He just won the national championship in 2019. I could be wrong, but I think that might have been his sixth or seventh national championship. Yep. Wow! Uh, he's a legend in the game. I mean, Dan's coached. I don't want to age him, so I'm not going to give a number, but I think it's probably approaching 35 years-ish. Hmm. Uh, but I have a lot of respect for Dan, and he he's a student of the game. he I've had one um, impactful conversation with Dan, I remember when I got the Stanford job. I reached out to him, and we met at a tournament, and we just talked for a couple of hours, and... I noted everything that I took away from that conversation and he was spot on. It was all great advice, especially, you know, we, we have similar programs and, you know, East coast, West coast, there's some some similarities to our programs and, but he was spot on. And I've always been really grateful that he took that time to share that knowledge with me. And it's really helped my coaching in the last eight years as I've had the opportunity to work with elite players. So I'd always love the opportunity to learn more from Dan. And so that would be someone I'd want to hear from.
0: Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot. Um, what are the one or two things that you would want me to ask Dan?
1: Oh, you are putting me on the spot. Is there anything that you would like to know about their program or any? Yeah. yeah, I think one great question for Dan, since it's a coaching podcast you have. When you coach, and I, you know, again, I don't want to age him, so don't say Ann said you've been coaching 55 <laughs> <Never>. years, <laughs> but uh, no, I think he has been coaching 35 years. And he has continued to win. You know he's continued to stay relevant and hasn't gotten stale and he continues to recruit great talent. Um, how he has been able to evolve with not only the game, there's the game part of it and keeping up with the trends in the game, but also with young women and how they evolve. and and you know we all know that the kids now are different to the ones from two ten to two thousand to nineteen ninety. Mm-hmm. And what he's done or how he's been able to just evolve as a, a coach and a person to stay relevant.
0: And thank you. This has been great. I've uh, really enjoyed it. Super thoughtful, um, really smart. Yeah. It's been a fun conversation.
1: Well, thank you. It's been fun to get to know you too. And Thanks so
0: much for listening. I'm assuming if you made it this far that you enjoyed the conversation. Would you please leave a review and pass this podcast along to anyone else that you think might enjoy it? If you have any suggestions for the show, I'm always looking to to grow and to improve the show. Email me at Travis at com. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, have a good one.